And uh, this is the 10th lesson in the covenant series, and we've made it to the Mosaic covenant. We still have the Davidic covenant to go, and of course the, the new covenant. But the Mosaic covenant uh, can be called a covenant of works, but it's important that you realize it's not purely a covenant of works. A covenant of works says do this and live, uh, do that and die, and certainly the Mosaic covenant has that within it. But um, Mosaic Covenant also uh, is the most comprehensive, uh, detailed covenant of the ones that we study. And so we'll probably spend a number of weeks on it. It's the most controversial uh, with numerous interpretations from many different schools of thought that range all the way from this is a terrible covenant that we should hate and get rid of and we're legalists if we even think that that we should think anything about it. And of course, that's a very antinomian attitude, but I've met antinomians that feel that way about it. And uh, when you ask them, well, is, is it wrong to, to kill? Is it wrong to commit adultery? They say, well, yeah, it's wrong, but not because of the Mosaic Covenant. It's wrong because it says that in the New Testament. I go, well, okay. <laughs> that's the kind of argument that, um, that we're not going to spend a lot of time arguing against because I don't think any of you believe that. So, but we are going to look at the Ten Commandments today, and I've got a handout that I purposely have not given you yet, because I don't want you to look at it yet. <laughs> so there you go. So you can look at it that way. Um, the Mosaic Covenant is really, con it consists of three things. Um, it has precise duties and um, ways to, to do sacrifices, and these sacrifices are are done by the priesthood in very precise ways. And they're not just animal sacrifices, they're also flour and, and wine sacrifices and all kinds of regulations about the high priests. And so that's one aspect of the Mosaic Covenant. The second aspect is there are many civil laws that are in the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, and, and many of them are applicable to our society today. Now, not all of them would be, but most of them would actually be very wise for us to consider uh, about um, them. But there are some, like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, that um, were necessary for that day. The Bible talks about those that were in Israel uh, being under tutors and governors, uh, like little children, until the time that we come to maturity here in the New Covenant. So there are, some of the laws were, were really rather strict, but there are many things we could learn from those civil laws, and many things our country uh, used to hold to from those civil laws, and unfortunately, many of those no longer, they, they don't any longer, let me just put it that way. I don't want to get on a rabbit trail. Okay, and then the Mosaic Covenant, as far as the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments set an impossibly high standard of morality. And this morality flows from God himself. Okay, so this, this comes from the very moral character of God and the very moral nature of God. Uh, the Ten Commandments, um, as you go to, to you know, we won't turn there right now because this is a flyover session. Uh, we're going to look at some scriptures, but um, we're going to get into detail on others. In... Exodus 19, God comes and meets with the people, you know, and then Moses goes up into the, I think we better turn there. Okay, let's turn to Exodus 19. Exodus 19, verse 1. 
I'll spend more time explaining it than it would to read it. <laughs> and um, Exodus 19, you know, this, this really sets a foundation for the Mosaic Covenant. Verse 3, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, because that's the first generation. Uh, they were there, so they would know. You've seen what I've done to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people of the earth, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And that should resonate with you for what Peter says in First Peter about the people of God uh, in the new covenant being that very thing. But you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. And then you know what happened. So Moses went up. And Moses received the Ten Commandments. While he was there receiving the Ten Commandments, the children of Israel broke the covenant right off the bat by following after other gods. Okay, so they broke the covenant. Moses comes down and, interestingly enough, breaks the tablets, right? And then prays for the people, intercedes for the people, goes back up and gets the Ten Commandments once again. So that kind of sets the stage for what we're talking about here. And it's important to, to realize that the law is useful and the law is helpful as long as we use the law lawfully. Misused and it can only bring condemnation and death. The Lord Jesus Christ kept the Ten Commandments and all righteous laws for us. And that is what is imputed to us as we're in Christ. It's as though we had done those things even though every one of us in this room have broken the Ten Commandments and, and um, not just broken one or two, probably broken multiple of them. And then we find out that if we broke one, we broke them all. And so that's what we're talking about here. It, it used unlawfully, it can bring about death. Used lawfully, it's life and morality. And the Jews of Jesus' day, by and large, misused the law by rejecting Christ, keeping to the traditions and regulations uh, even the ones that had been um, put aside. Uh, there was no reason for the ceremonial laws any longer uh, because Jesus Christ had come and uh, they were picturing him. So all these things. And then in 70 AD, basically, uh, God uh, took away their self-righteousness and ability to do sacrifices, ability to even uh, do things the way they've wanted to do them. And they ended up substituting other things for them kind of interesting, um, very important for Jews to keep kosher. Just try to find kosher in the Bible. You will find, um, you will find dietary laws, but keeping kosher the way that the Jews do today is not to be found in the Bible. It's found in the rabbinical writings that come later. It's one of the things they did to, to keep themselves uh, separate from the world. I turn to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Of course, some of that keep, keeping kosher had to do with parts of it from dietary laws. So don't get me wrong, but the way they went about it and all the things about it. 
Now, the transition from the regulation to the Mosaic Covenant can be seen in Paul's letter to the Galatians. And here in Galatians chapter 4, God specifically compares the Old Covenant with Israel to the New Covenant, not made of any specific race of people, but instead includes all that come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was a Jew of the Jews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and he thought before his conversion that he was an outstanding example of how to please God by his own works. But when he was confronted by the risen Lord, he understood it's all about what Jesus has done and not what we can do ourselves. So Galatians chapter 4, verse, verse 21, Tell me, ye who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? Remember the Galatian context. Uh, these, are, these are Christians that are now going towards the law for righteousness for themselves. Okay? They're... they're They've, Paul says, fallen from grace. Okay. <coughs> For it's written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. Which things are symbolic. Doesn't mean they weren't real. There was a real Hagar, there was a real Sarah. But they're also symbolic. For these are the two covenants the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Now you want to really um, poke these legalistic Jews in the eye. Nothing would poke them in the eye worse than that. Can you imagine? You're calling Hagar, who we hate, Mount Sinai, which we love? You know, that, that would have been just a, an insult of insults done purposely. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, which corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. Now, there's a new Jerusalem that's above, but he's talking about the Jerusalem that existed before 70 AD that was opposed to Christianity and opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. But so he says, Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all, for it's written. And then he applies the scripture. Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Bring forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now, now we, brethren, as Isaac was, our children promised. Thank you. I don't know. I was doing fine until there's some. Um, I told Joe I didn't need a reader. Maybe I was wrong, Joe. Probably do need, I probably do need a reader, actually. That'll help me, I think. So, you know. If you can go back and get a, a microphone, that'll give my voice a chance to, to rest for... <coughs> I'm not allergic to those flowers because they're not real. <laughs> so, so something's wrong. <coughs> anyway, doing fine until a moment ago. Anyway... As you can see, this was a, a real slam at the Judaizers in Galatia, but uh, he's got worse slams in the book of Galatians, too. As you, as you read it, you can find out. So uh, you have to remember the context. This is not an indictment against the Ten Commandments. That's not the purpose here. Sinai is used because the Ten Commandments become the centerpiece of the Mosaic Covenant. So he uses Sinai as that. And we already just read the passage where Moses went up to Sinai 
and God talks about the covenant, the Mosaic covenant being there. So we're going to prove today that the Ten Commandments are still valid for today, that we should follow them. This is God's uh, way of righteousness. And uh, turn to one other passage, got time. 1 Timothy 5, or 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. <coughs> First Timothy chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. And Paul says to Timothy in one of the very last epistles, not the last, but one of the very last epistles that he wrote. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some have strayed, turning aside to idle talk. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless. Now, now here comes a, a long list of sins. Okay. Still very valid for today. You know. But we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this. The law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless, insubordinate, for the ungodly, for sinners, for unholy and profane, and murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators. That's all kinds of, of sexual sin. Very, very broad category here, usually having to do with men and women. For sodomites, Paul was not observing pride month you know isn't that amazing you know and uh, the ESV says homosexuals you know okay for kidnappers and uh, we've seen a tremendous rise in sex trafficking you know it's not new and uh, slavery is not new kidnapping for slavery's sake for liars for perjurers and if there's any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God who is committed to my trust. So, there we see the wrong use of the law, trying to keep it as a covenant of works to merit salvation. Proper use of the law is understanding this is the standard of right and wrong and proper conduct even today for the Christian, the third use of the law. Okay, and uh, I, I need a couple of volunteers to pass out the, the paper now. I can, so we can look at it here. You got it. There you go. There you go. And thank you, Pat. You got it. Okay. Now, while they're passing that out, let me just say this. There's three uses of the law. And that's a very, pretty much standard Reformed theology to understand that. It's not Lutheran theology. Lutheran theology doesn't agree with the third use of the law tell you what the third use is in just a moment. But Reformed theology, it's one of the differences between Lutheranism and Reformed. Number one, to show the righteous standard of God and convict the sinner of sin that he has fallen short. And so that's the first use of the law, to use it to convict the sinner of sin and show that there's a standard of righteousness. And uh, the Lutherans do that. Uh, the, I'm talking about Lutherans that actually believe in God. 
There are Lutherans that don't, basically. There are Presbyterians that don't. There are Baptists that don't. Okay. But I'm talking about Orthodox, you know, to their roots people. Okay. So the law and gospel becomes a very important part of Lutheran theology, and it's part of Reformed theology, too, but done differently. Done differently. Second use of the law is the civil use. It's a standard of morality that should stand the test of time. And when a culture embraces what God condemns, then there's sure to be consequences. And the proper understanding of history shows that to be true. And uh, people live through that kind of history, and it's harder to see when you're living through it, but you can look back and see what has happened. And so there's the, the, right, the standard of God, of morality, there's the idea of the civil use, and then as Reformed believers, we believe that, it's a, that the Ten Commandments specifically are a moral guide for Christians. And the Christian understands that God's fulfilled the moral law for us. It's his righteousness that he won, you know. And so as far as our right standing before God, uh, we're in Christ. So, you know, that, that's what it is. But we also know that we are not to, to break God's commands. There's chastisement for those that do. Uh, he loves his children, and he will chastise us as we go our own particular way. Now we can look at our paper here. The moral law reveals to us the character of God. How does it do that? Well, you know, we must accept God for, for not who we think he is, or carnal man would like him to be, but what he's revealed to be. And page 9, that's Roman numeral 9, in our hymnal, if you don't know the Ten Commandments, you can open the hymnal, or if you just want to look at them and remind yourself, I didn't put the Ten Commandments on here except in, in shorthand. You know, but if you want to look at that and uh, the very front of the hymnal, page Roman numeral 9, you can do that. But what does each commandment mean in, in shorthand? Well, you'll have no other gods before me. He is supreme. He's behind no one. No one else is God, no one else can be God, and we can't have any other gods. That's the first commandment, okay? No graven images. That one, why? Why would we not be allowed to, to draw pictures of God and such like that, you know? Well, he's incomprehensible in all of his attributes. He's not made in our image, we're made in his image. And so he's the one that said not anything in heaven above or the earth beneath or the waters under the earth. You know, don't do those things. No graven images. Don't take his name in vain. A lot of ways to do that. Cursing and swearing is a way to do that. Uh, the Bible is more or less thinking about um, swearing in the name of God. Swearing in his name and then breaking the, the vows. That's, that's a, a part of it that we don't think about as much. Uh, but we do hear cursing and swearing all the time, and that's included too. Remember the Sabbath day. Okay. Now, now this is an interesting one. We'll talk much more about the Sabbath day uh, as we go through the series, which is going to be broken up by the summer, by the way. But um, we we have to do we have to strip away the outer aspects of it that were meant for Israel, and yet keep 
the important aspects of it. It's meant for us. What if, you know, I see some quizzical looks. Okay. Bible tells us you can only walk so far on the Sabbath day. Most of you drove farther than you're allowed to go. Okay. Not all of you. And I didn't. <laughs> but most of you did. Yeah. But that's not relevant for today. But it was very relevant for them. Uh, you can't light a fire on the Sabbath day. Okay. Well, it may be a good idea to prepare your meals ahead of time. That's fine. But I don't think you're sinning if you go home and throw something on the fire and eat it, you know. So that, those are the laws that strip. But there's something that should never be stripped away. He is owed worship. That's what the Sabbath is about for Christians. He is owed worship, and he's the one that tells us how to worship him. So if we despise that, we're breaking the commandments. He's owed worship. We must worship him. And he tells us how to worship him. And of course, um, the, our, I was reading a little bit of Seventh-day Adventist this week just to refresh myself on what they have to say. And um, let me just say this. You know, uh, they, they believe, some of them believe it's the mark of the beast to worship on Sunday. Uh, most of them don't believe that anymore. Um, uh, Seventh-day Adventists have gotten liberal like everybody else gets liberal, you know. So some, some will even, and, and I'm glad they do, some will even rent their facilities out to, to Christian churches for Sunday. Okay. So that's nice. That's good. You know, but it really goes against a lot of their principles of what they should be following. The, the principles are, are the, the morality is not found in the day. If the morality was found in the day, then we would have to worship on Saturday because that would be the morality of then. But the morality is not found in the day. The morality is found in what God has said. And the first day of the week now is the Christian Sabbath. And so we worship him on Sunday, and we're right to do so. And we should worship him on Sunday. And in fact, I'll go so far as to say, uh, I have trouble with those that do worship on Saturday because I think they're looking too much to the old ways of the old covenant and, uh, you know, they're binding themselves with things that they don't mean to bind themselves with, or maybe they do. Okay, so that's my opinion. So we'll hold, I'm going to ask for questions at the end of these t first ten that we talk about. But the Sabbath day is despised even amongst Christians today, and yet I find, this is my opinion, I find that many of our brethren who do not believe the Sabbath is relevant for today are better Sabbath keepers than some Reformed Christians. Yeah, they're, I, I think of my own upbringing. Man, I was in church all day Sunday. <laughs> I had to go home in time to eat. That was about a, like the extent of it, you know, and yet I didn't believe the Sabbath day was Sunday. It had nothing to do with the Sabbath. You know, I didn't believe it. But um, I was there all the time. Well, basically, uh, the Bible doesn't tell us how many times to worship, how many times to, how many times to meet, but we do know when we should meet, and that's Sunday, you know, and that's what we're doing. Five, honor your father and mother. He's the designer of the family. He's the creator of all authority. You cannot have uh, two fathers. You cannot have two mothers. He's the one that designed father and mother. 
Uh, you do no murder. He's the giver and sustainer of life. And uh, obviously, abortion comes into that, as well as any form of murder. You should not commit adultery. He's the giver and sustainer of human relationships. You shall not steal, giver and sustainer of property. You shall not lie or bear false witness, as it says. He's the author and sustainer of truth. And you shall not covet. The Lord even is the Lord of our thought life and our thoughts. And uh, you really would have a hard time exercising church discipline against somebody for coveting, unless it were just so overtly uh, seen and, and so possible. But if you're just coveting in your heart, uh, you'd never be disciplined and church disciplined for that because we wouldn't know. <laughs> How would we even know? God knows. That's the point. Okay. Any questions then about uh, that first part? We're going to go on some, some more here. Yes, Christian. It may not be relevant to the conversation, but I note that the first four commandments have all to do with man's allegiance to God. Right. And the latter six have to do with man's allegiance to man. Yeah. So a lot of people probably won't realize that. Okay. Yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. I'll, I'll just recap it for the, the tape there, or for the people at home. Yeah, the first four commandments are Godward. Okay. And then the last six are man dealing with man. And if you look on there, you can see that uh, it is exactly that way. Okay. So, now we go on to the next part here. The sinner must know who he is, a lawbreaker. And the moral law reveals to us our failure in being like God. And so it's very valid to talk about sin with the sinner. They need to repent of their sins. They need to come to Christ and believe in him. They need to come to him by faith. The sins are, we have put other gods before him. The sin is, we've tried to form God into our own image according to our own thinking and own ways. For some reason, that didn't finish out. Third of all, we've not reverenced him as holy. Fourth of all, we've not given him the worship that's due to his name. Five, we've not respected his authorities over us, be they parents or, or other authorities even, as we can stretch it out. And um, this is a, a recap of stretching it out, by the way. Number six, um, we have hated in our hearts and sinned. Number seven, we've lusted in our hearts and betrayed our sexual purity. Eight, we've taken what was not rightfully ours. Number nine, we've not been absolutely truthful in all of our dealings. And ten, we have not had absolute perfect control over our thought life. And only the Lord Jesus Christ kept those perfectly. And he did keep them perfectly. And then by faith, and repentance, you come to faith in Christ, you believe in him, you're in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to you, your sin was imputed to him and paid for. So, uh, we, we can see that uh, this is, you know, the, the way that we have broken God's law. Put as simply as we possibly can, of course, those things can be fleshed out later. Um, I will say, let me see what's on the back here of what I wrote. So where to go next? 
Yeah. There are two reasons and two uses for the fourth commandment, which is the controversial one, the Sabbath day. You know, most Christians you meet will tell you, no, that's Sabbath. That had nothing to do with Christians. Nothing to do with Christians at all. And, and uh, they're wrong, but they got a half-truth. Half-truth isn't a full truth. That's the problem. But there is a half-truth going on here with that. And um, we do realize that there's two basic reasons uh, for the Sabbath. In the Exodus account, in six days the Lord made the heavens and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. That's called the creation ordinance. Okay, There's a creation ordinance that's Sabbatarian. But there's an ordinance for the people of God, uh, Israel itself, at, in Sinai, uh, at, uh, going at the very brink of the promised land. Remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And failure to keep the Sabbath day uh, would show that they weren't part of the people of God. And uh, we even see that a man was stoned because he tried to gather manna on the Sabbath when God said, no, I'm going to send you twice as much on Friday, using our terms. Saturday, you don't gather anything. He goes out to gather it. What do we do with him? God said, stone him. Okay. And that becomes a living example. Israel was to remember the Sabbath day because of creation and because as God's special people being delivered from Egyptian bondage, they owed him worship as their God. And then Christians are to remember the Sabbath day, Sunday now, because creation and because as God's special people being delivered from this present world of bondage, we owe him worship as as our God. And our culture, no, not unfortunately, our culture unconsciously even realizes these things. It's kind of interesting. Is Friday and Saturday the weekend? We all know Sunday is the first day of the week, but the weekend is Saturday and Sunday. Kind of interesting how that happens, you know. There's reasons for that. Reasons that used to be understood, have long been forgotten. And then, as we go on from here, you know, um, just as an illustration, um, we understand that we get away from the regulations of the Jewish Sabbath, like how far you can travel, not to light a fire, uh, worship God from the heart, and um, not the letter, that's our commandment. Of what we're supposed to do, worshiping from the heart, not by the letter of the law. But I can assure you, with all that being said and done, that uh, going to a Dodger game on Sunday instead of worshiping the Lord shows what's more important to you. That even applies to angels too, sorry. Wasn't, <laughs> wasn't just uh, angels games too are included in, and tiger games and whatever game you want to have, anything like that, anything. And I've, I've seen tragic things happen with um, people that have put um, youth sports on Sunday ahead of worshiping God. Pastor, I've seen that happen, and I've never seen it work out good. I'm not saying 
I just have never seen it work out good. Okay. Never seen that be to the spiritual good of anybody. But I know it's a lot harder nowadays than it ever used to be. Because Saturday's the day to do all your chores. Sunday's the day to have all your fun. That's what our culture's turned it into. Yeah. Okay. Now turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. We need to understand the Mosaic law, even though it has a lot of regulations and, and rules. Like I said, they were under tutors and governors until the time. But we would be very wrong to think that the, the new covenant is not visible there and can be seen. And here's a passage where it is. Now, admit it, it it's not as clear as it may be in other places. And that's why it was so easy for the Jews to miss what they were, not trying to excuse them, just saying that that's where, what they came to. They didn't fully understand what was going to happen. They thought that everything was physical. They thought all the promises to them were physical. They didn't see the spiritual aspect of it. They didn't see what Christ was going to do. They didn't see that Gentiles were going to be saved. They didn't see that uh, they, that really, uh, let me put it this way. I'll state it as loudly and as broad as I can. You say, well, God has forsaken the Jews. God has not forsaken the Jews. That is wrong. Absolutely wrong. God has not forsaken the Jews. Paul argues that in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Paul himself says, I'm a Jew. What God has done is not taken anything away from the Jewish people. They say, well, we lost our land, you know. We lost this, we lost that. He hasn't taken anything away from the Jewish people. He's given them even more. Spiritual blessings, tremendous blessings. All they have to do is come to Christ and believe in Him. And uh, tonight, when we are in the book of Revelation, we're going to see once again that the, the walls surrounding New Jerusalem, it's a vision, remember that, it's a vision, but the walls surrounding New Jerusalem has 12 gates guarded by angels. And the 12 gates have the names of the children of Israel over the gates. And then there's a foundation below that. And the foundation has the names of the 12 apostles. And this pictures old and new together. Believers together. One church made up of Jew and Gentile alike. So those that are worshiping the Jewish religion today are actually worshiping a false religion. It's a false religion. Uh, it's a religion of their own making. It's not, even, it's not even the Mosaic Covenant religion. It's a religion of their own making and their own rules. But nothing's been taken away from them. They have every right and duty and privilege to come to the Messiah, the Messiah who came to them first. Come to the Messiah, repent and believe, and uh, they will truly be the people of God, much better than we ever see happen in the Old Testament. They'll be the true people of God. And they always have been a people of God. There's always been a remnant, always been believers. Well, I, I turned you to the scripture. Let's turn there. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 the Lord your God 
will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst. This is Moses talking. Okay. From your brethren, him you shall hear. So it's going to be a prophet like Moses. Moses was a tremendous prophet. He was the great lawgiver. You know, he was their leader. For 40 years he led them. You know, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb, in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they've spoken is good. And this is a, a, an indication of the Incarnation. Jesus Christ didn't come with, a, with flames. Uh, read Revelation chapter 1, the picture of the risen Lord Jesus Christ that John falls before. When he came in the world, he didn't come that way. Looked like a guy. Looked like a Jew, because he was. <laughs> you know, he just, th there was no nothing comely about him. That you go, whoa, that's impressive. And he didn't have a halo over his head, shining. It's interesting, a picture, pictures that people draw, when artists draw pictures of Jesus, you can almost always tell who's Jesus. Almost always. You know, but that w wouldn't necessarily be the way it was. You, you may not be able to pick out Jesus in a crowd until he starts talking. And like, Whoa, <laughs> no one's ever spoke like that. So it wasn't his appearance. And this impressive appearance at Sinai wasn't the way the Lord came. So verse 18, I will raise up from you. Uh, I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brethren and I'll put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. And then he goes on to prophets true and false um, coming later there. Um, the, the next place we would go, but we're going to run out of time. So I'm going to note this of where we were. And um, Deuteron Deuteronomy chapter 6 becomes a, a very important strategic place in the Mosaic Covenant. Just give you a little insight on it. And if you want to ask any questions, we'll have about a couple of minutes to, to be able to answer them. But in Isaiah chapter 6, there's the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And that is vitally important. Uh, our family went on a, a walk yesterday and, and, and met our friends from the Truth Church over there. Um, they were in the park preaching. And the message that they were preaching in the park was a good message that I wouldn't have found fault with what they were saying. Come to Jesus, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, all that. But I happened to, and I talked to a couple of them just ever so briefly uh, because they were, you know, they approached us as we were walking on the other side of the street. And I didn't approach him about this. I just said, I'm the pastor of the church there. At, uh, yeah, one of the pastors. I didn't say one of them, but I am one of them. The pastor of the church over there on the corner. Said, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, very good. God bless you, you know, anything like that. But I have another modalist. 
Who can, who can explain what a modalist is? Who knows what a modalist is? Come on, theologians. <laughs> okay, Linda, give it a shot. God um, holds different roles at different times. Not Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they would consider the Trinity a heresy. They would consider the Trinity a heresy. Yeah, but hard to believe. But then they'd challenge you saying, well, show me in the Bible where the word Trinity appears. Okay, that's not the way you do things, okay? okay. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, okay, that's, that's what we believe. They would say, he was the Father, he is the Son, and I, I don't know how they get the Spirit in there, I just don't know. Modeless. Uh, but they, they believe God takes different modes at different times. Okay, they don't believe in the Trinity. That's an ancient heresy. That goes back into the first century. You know, it's best we can tell. And it certainly appears in the second century. So, you know, um, that's what they believe. And uh, like, like most things, um, the pastor that used to be over there, oh, he was a strong modalist. He'd come over here trying to convert me to modalism. Um, uh, I've never had, uh, I've told this story before. Um, they, they hate Calvin. Oh, my. He hated Calvin with a passion, you know. And he was trying to convert me one day using some sleight of hand. Um, he had a little thing. Let me show you what I've developed here to go into homes and witness to people. So he had this big flip chart he was using. Uh, and all of a sudden I realized, oh, no. I, I'm being... <laughs> I, I'm, he's trying to convert me here. But he stopped um, and, and looked behind me and saw my Calvin's commentaries. And he said, um, those are Calvin's commentaries, John Calvin. I said, yeah, oh, man, John Calvin's great. I said, sing of the praises of John Calvin. I said, I profit from these. I read them all the time. And, and he stopped me and said, John Calvin burned servitus at the stake. Got his stuff and left. <laughs> servitus was a modalist. <laughs> he knew that. He knew enough about the theology to understand that, you know. I've had many conversations with the pastor over there now, and um, never anything not, has ever come up like that. Uh, never. In fact, uh, he reminds me of Jerry Falwell, when Jerry Falwell was alive. Some of you know who Jerry Falwell was. You know, big, jolly, happy guy, you know? But uh, at any rate, um, uh, no. So don't, they don't believe in the Trinity. Yeah. I don't even know why I got on that. But the Lord our God is one. That's why I got on it. <laughs> The Lord our God is one. And uh, this is very, very true. Because we are not tritheists. Okay. So the challenge is explain the Trinity to me then. So I can understand it. Oh, you want to understand God, huh? Okay, you want to know everything about God? You want to know as much as God knows. And we, we can't explain it. That's the truth. We can't explain it. But we believe it by faith because it's revealed in the scriptures. Okay. I promise you two minutes for questions. Here's your two. A minute and a half. <laughs> you want to get out early then? Oh, Aracella, are you trying to raise your hand? Yeah. Okay. Only because I had a, a, a question about that, about, you know, where it used to be Saturday and then. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And um, because I know that, like you mentioned, the seventh day at Matt's, right. it's still practice for and um, I read, like to make it short, something about where 
when Jesus rose, uh, you know, from the dead, that was the culmination of our new covenant. Yeah. Um, and then as Christians, we believe in hell and fun on Sunday. So that's why we celebrate. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is why. That is why, because of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And so once a year, there's Easter Sunday, but we usually call it Resurrection Day uh, because every Sunday we meet, we're, we're honoring the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, you're exactly right. Okay, you got it there. But there, we could do some other things with that too, uh, but we, and we will, but we probably won't be able to do it right now. Brendan, go ahead. Was it Marcion that gave us both I don't know the answer to that. Marcion was a great heretic, but I don't remember if he was a modalist. Sorry. Yes. Regarding the Sabbath, her question, yeah. uh, we used to be seventy-day Adventists. Oh, okay. And one of the things that drew me out of it was I was reading an article on this once, and it was a book called The Kingdom of the Cults. Oh, Walter Martin, yeah. And in there, he pointed us to the Greek and Elite and in Matthew 24, where Christ rose from the dead. Um, it says there in the Greek, in the Elite, that at the end of the Sabbaths, plural, as it began to dawn toward the first of the Sabbaths, so it separates the whole. I, I've never heard that, actually. I would have to look it up. I could, I could easily look that up in the, the Greek, but I don't have a Greek Bible in front of me. Right now. Uh, I, will, I will say this, though. You know, um, The Bible talks about Sabbaths, plural. And um, that may include, at times the Jewish Sabbath, but it includes more than that. It includes the holy days, uh, three feast festivals each time. The feast starts on a Sabbath, ends on a Sabbath, but there may be a Sabbath in the middle because maybe the Sabbath that started on it was Tuesday. Uh, that, that, so the Bible talks about new moons and Sabbaths, you know, and um, okay. So it's more than Saturday in, okay. Very good. Thank you very much for your kind attention. We need to be ready for worship. Please make sure that your kids get here from Sunday school.